It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because This Might Get Uncomfortable starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lauritsen. Max, I am really looking forward to talking with you today. It's been a long time coming, and as I usually do, I was prepping for the episode, and one thing I was curious about was how long we knew each other, and so I went and did a search for your name on my computer, and the first thing I found, or as far back as it went, was 2010. (laughs) <laughs> I have like an email record of you following me on Twitter. <laughs> so <laughs> we have officially known each other over 10 years, which is really neat. And then I was diving further back into our history and saw that I've been a member of your organic LinkedIn group since 2012, at least. And that, I think, led us to really connecting. And perhaps that all happened during the Natural Products Expo because you had that wonderful organic industry meetup group there. And then another thing I had no recollection of was that in 2013, apparently I won some contest you did with Suja. And it's funny because I don't recall getting a Suja prize package. So I don't know why I'm blanking out on this, but apparently I won some giveaway that you did. And that was, and it's pretty neat because as we're going to touch upon a lot in the episode, we'll talk about organic. And that is a big reason that you and I know each other. And then we also have a lot of overlap with juice companies. So in addition to Suja, there's also Cocoa Beat that you introduced me and Jason to in Boston. I grew up in Massachusetts, and now you're living in Boston. And do you still run the Pressed Juice Directory? Is that still active? Well, first off, thanks for having me on. And it's just, it's great to be on your podcast. You and Jason are doing an amazing job. I really love what you're doing. Thank you. It's fantastic. And to answer your question, it is still up, but it's not active. Okay. Do people still go in there and search and things for for juice companies? I think there's a minimal amount of traffic, not a huge amount. You know, you can get pressed juice everywhere now. But back in the day, if you remember in 2011 or 12 or even 2010, it was, you know, it was novel. And maybe Organic Avenue in New York, Juice Press opened in 2010. And Organic Avenue opened, I think, a few years before that. So, you know. It was very different back then, where finding pressed juice was not that easy. Right, right. And I'm so glad that you brought up juice press, too. I imagine Jason's getting a little excited behind (laughs) the scenes right now hearing us talk about that because juice press was like such a special thing. And every time we would go to New York City, that was like our must go to. And they have one specific juice there that I loved. It had dandelion. And I mean, I imagine they still have a lot of the original juices, Max? I haven't been to New York in a while. They've rotated a lot of them. Mm -hmm. So they have a few of them. They used to have a juice called Drink Your Salad, which I loved. That was my favorite. They discontinued that. It was almost like a, I think it was basically a gazpacho, but very, it wasn't chunky or thick. It was more on the thinner side, but it was called Drink Your Salad. It was awesome. It was spicy. I'm trying to look up what the name of 
the uh, dandelion juice that I love. I know it was a green juice. Was it Mother Earth? Jason, do you remember which one? I do remember drinking a lot of Mother Earths, yes. To be quite honest, I was more of a, well, M, I suppose, more of a smoothie connoisseur when I go to Juice Press, where I always loved their fresh superfood smoothie. So my whole MO, pretty much every single time I've been to Juice Press, going back to when I lived in New York, I moved out in, what, 2006, I would always go in and get a smoothie and a juice and a shot, and that was my trifecta. But it's interesting you bring up Organic Avenue because I actually, one of the first jobs that I interviewed for out of culinary school was with Doug Evans there when he was running it, when they had just their one location on the Lower East Side. So I've got some history with Organic Avenue as well. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like that my favorite drink at Juice Press was called Mother Earth. Do you remember any of the others? I feel like, Jason, you and I both love to drink the same one. I bet you I have a picture of it somewhere. Maybe I just need to go through my photo archive. You don't, But you don't remember the name, Jason. No, and I, I feel like because I just would rotate so many of their offerings that I I didn't necessarily have something that I would stick with every single time. So no, I don't remember the name. I will get to the bottom of it because I, I love to know these things. But it, yeah, it is interesting, Max, to go back to what you were saying about how much things have changed. And we see this a lot in the plant-based food movement, how much has evolved just the offerings that are available. Back in the day, it was like such a novelty to be able to get certain things. In fact, I was watching an old video of mine from 2013, and (laughs) it was just really amusing to me because I was so excited about just having the vegan options mentioned on the menu, and they were very basic. And now in 2020, most places you can find really advanced and specialty vegan foods all over the country and the world. And I think that's happening with unprocessed food, healthy food in general. And how about in terms of organic, Max, how much has shifted in your viewpoint in the past 10 years? I think the biggest thing that has changed is people's acceptance of it. That's what I would say. So I've been eating close to 100% organic since 2001. Wow. That's a long time. Yeah, it's a long time. I remember back then it was really difficult to find organic places. And it caused a lot of problems with my family, with friends. I remember my father saying to me, you know, you're never going to be able to date anyone because they're not going to eat like you. Wow. You know, none of these women want to eat all organic. And, you know, I think that's changed, you know, very much where people, a lot of people want to eat organic. And it's not a fight to find people who want to eat organic. So I think there's been a real change in the consciousness of people. And when you go to cities now, finding organic restaurants or finding organic juice bars, it's not like it was. It's not everywhere, but it's not as challenging as it was. You can go to most places now and find organic options. Yeah. I mean, it's really amazing the access that we have, especially with the internet and getting things delivered now, you know, there are companies like Thrive Market that make it easy to just press a button and order things. Or even in your local area, you can use Instacart or Postmates or whatever and get food delivered. And so it's no longer an issue of not being able to find something or not being able to easily have it sent to you. And even in the case of juices, you can get things delivered. I mean, I know that Suja, are they still doing delivery or, and are there other companies, Max, that you know that are 
are really great organic delivery services? Well, to be honest, I think Suja may have stopped their deliveries because of COVID. So I'm not 100% sure, but obviously Thrive is a big one. But to be perfectly honest, I love going to the grocery store. I love going to food shopping. So do I. (laughs) Yeah. We all have that in common, I think, the three of us. Yeah. So the idea of getting food sent to me, and I understand why people do. Some people might not have access to it. Some people might not have time. For me, going to the supermarket is one of my great pleasures. And I think what's unique for all of us is that we can go to the supermarket And we know not all the brands, but many of the brands, particularly the brands that we enjoy, we know the people behind it and we know the stories behind it. And so that makes it even more fun. So we can go to the market and know, okay, this brand is really doing things the right way. And they have a new project in Ecuador and this is where they're sourcing their cacao from. And so, you know, it's a very different experience because we're in the industry and we go to the shows and we meet all the founders. So it makes going a food shopping, it brings a whole new dimension to it. And, you know, we're in the food industry. It's just, this is what we love doing. I'm in total agreement with you, Max, in the sense that with traveling, one of my absolute favorite things to do is visit new natural markets, organic markets, and of course, restaurants in different cities that we travel to, mm-hmm. whether, you know, Whitney and I are on a business trip or we're coming out to Expo East or any variety of touring dates that we've had in the past. It's just such a thrill for me in particular to see small batch local brands that we can't get in Los Angeles. You know, if I see a a new organic kraut or a new brand of kombucha or something really innovative and unique with great packaging that's unique to that local area, I flip out. It's one of my favorite things. But, you know, one thing that I've backed away from, I think probably because of some of the egregiously long lines outside of some of the natural stores here. I've actually been getting food delivery. I've been using Imperfect Produce this whole time because they actually have an option where you can select only organic produce in their box. And I find that the prices are actually phenomenal. And they're sending me food that is cosmetically imperfect that would sometimes be thrown away or composted at the grocery level. I really love their mission. And honestly, getting a, a fresh box of produce every week literally at my doorstep has been something that I don't know that I want to go away from because (laughs) the quality of what they've been sending me has exceeded my expectations. And so the quality is very high and it's organic, just not perfect looking. Is that what it is? That's exactly correct. So say if I get a batch of organically grown Fuji apples, there's going to be some indentations or some spotty marking or things that aren't going to fit with people's I suppose, aesthetic preferences for produce looking perfect. Uh It's interesting, the psychology of that, right? Like when we go in and people are just conditioned to gravitate toward what they perceive as a perfect piece of produce. Yeah. But these apples and the celery and the eggplant and all the great produce that I get, the flavor is phenomenal because it's organic. A lot of it's from local LA farms in some cases. And so even though it's cosmetically not up to that perfection aesthetic standard, the flavor is just as phenomenal as you would expect from local organic produce. Well, I think one of the things that's happening with COVID is we're all experiencing the way we're getting our foods is dramatically changing. And so we're probably trying things that we weren't trying before, like with the experience that you're having right now with the the imperfect uh, produce. And that has also had a very severe impact on what's going on in the country. 
because people's demand for food has not changed, but how it's being distributed has dramatically changed. And there have been massive problems in the supply chain with milk being dumped, with vegetables being plowed over, with their massive issues at these meat. I know you're vegan, but it's at the meat packing facilities. And then what's also happening right now is, this is something I've been writing about in Organic Insider is, we depend heavily on these H2A visa workers, primarily from Latin America. And there've been a lot of COVID outbreaks in these uh, packing facilities, primarily vegetables, fruit and vegetables. In one of the stories I wrote about maybe three, four weeks ago, I spoke with this organic apple grower in Michigan who said, if I can't get my H2A visa workers, my business is done. I'm not going to be able to produce much of anything. And I think what this crisis has done is hopefully raised awareness of the importance of many of these food workers who are and food, you know, laborers and out in the farms who are absolutely essential to us getting food, but they do not get the respect, the treatment, the wages that they deserve. And I think there was a story out that there was outbreaks in 60 different packing plants. And I'm not just talking meat, it's vegetables as well. And there was a movement in Britain where they were having a public campaign. They needed 70,000 workers to help pick the crops in the fields. That's super interesting and actually something I feel very ignorant on. So I'm grateful for your perspective on this, Max. And that's one of the things I love about you and especially your Organic Insider newsletters, because I feel like I can stay informed But you just have so much knowledge and and awareness about what's going on in this industry. And it also kind of reminds me of something. I don't know if you've heard much about this, Max, but I've been seeing more people talking about brands that are using prison labor. Have you done any research on that? Because I want to learn more about what's going on with that, too. I haven't done a huge amount on prison labor, but there's an issue with chocolate. Chocolate is a big issue, not as much with the organic brands, because the organic brands generally have well on these chocolate scorecards in terms of child labor and whatnot. It's more with the big mass market non-organic brands. So I've heard more around the cacao or cocoa than I have with prison labor. It's so fascinating. And I feel like it's incredibly timely too, because we're in this time where there's a lot of awareness on equality Mm -hmm. and justice and just becoming more conscious of how other people are treated. And that doesn't just go by the color of our skin or our gender or sexuality, but it's also our our careers and our jobs. And there's also an ongoing conversation about people coming in from different countries to work here and just the draw that America has as a country. But unfortunately, there's a lot of things that are happening in this country that many of us just aren't aware of. And I think basically it comes down to privilege. And for those of us who are on the side of the certain amount of privilege, we can be very ignorant about what's happening to people that aren't as privileged. And part of our privilege is food, you know, like our our access to food, where we live, our finances and our ability to purchase things. You know, all three of us have the privilege of purchasing mainly organic or in your case, Max, at least close to 100 <laughs> percent. I don't know if you would say 100 percent, but probably you're one of the closest to living a 100% organic lifestyle of anybody I know. And that to me is a huge privilege because 
as we know, it can often be more expensive to buy organic food or products in general. And then as we've been talking about getting access to them, Jason mentioned in a recent episode, food deserts Mm -hmm. and how I think for those of us that live in big cities like Los Angeles, Boston, New York, San Francisco, et cetera, in the United States, there are many cities where we take it for granted, you know? And also, I think our education is a privilege as well. The three of us are educated and we have a lot of connections and, you know, we can just call up a friend and say, hey, where do you get your organic produce from? But not everybody has access to that information or that awareness. And so I think that's a really important thing to touch upon today. And and I want to encourage the listener to be educated. And that's part of why we brought Max on here is because you're such a wealth of information. So if you as a listener have not yet dived very far into organic living and then also these issues like the workers that are producing our food and other products that we're purchasing, I highly recommend Max's work going to him. You know, you spend hours and hours every week researching this, <laughs> Max, which is so impressive, but it shows your big passion for it. And I'm very, very grateful. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate those kind words. You know, when I first got into the organic industry. So you personally got into organic about 19 years ago, it sounds like 2001. 2001, yeah. When did you get into it professionally? End of 09, beginning of 2010. So I was living in Boston at the time and someone said to me, hey, there's this organic trade show. It's literally happening right now. And I didn't even know that there were trade shows for organic. If I had known that in 2001, I probably would have been in the industry since then. But I didn't even know there were trade shows. And so I remember this so vividly. I got the name of the woman who ran the press room. This was Expo East going on in Boston. I called her up and I said, I told her who I was. I said, I don't have a website. I don't have business cards. I have nothing, but can I come to the show? And she said, sure, come in and call me and I'll take care of you. Because this is 2009. I think Twitter had just started and Facebook was, you know, in the very early days. There was no Instagram and people weren't begging to get into these trade shows like, you know, it's happening now. So I remember that very vividly. But when I first got into the industry, as most people who get into organic, they get in because they don't want to eat pesticides in their food. And I think that's the primary reason people come to organic. But once I started getting into the industry and I started learning what was going on with, you know, really the politics, food politics, I just could not help but be involved. And back in the day and maybe... 2011, 12, 13, GMO labeling was a really big deal. And, you know, I was very involved in GMO labeling and put on fundraisers to raise money for these campaigns, for the federal campaign and for the state ones. There was a real shift for me in terms of why I'm doing this, because, you know, I really became much more of an activist, which I never, ever thought that I would become. It was just not in my nature. And then as time has gone on, I mean, if I could be writing about food politics every week on Organic Insider, I would be doing it. But I know that that's not what people want to hear every week. I need to you know, keep my audience, I need to give it to them in pieces so they listen to when they are, you know, I don't want to give them too much. And, and overwhelm them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I know people want a mix of different topics, so I try to do that. But really, you know, when I got in the industry and I really learned what was going on, I said, I just can't sit back and not be involved. 
And that's really guided everything that I do is about promoting and protecting organic. I mean, that's why I do what I do. And just getting back to what we talked about with, you know, these workers that are not being treated well, something that I've been writing about for the last few years is a new certification in organic called the Regenerative Organic Certified. It's a brand new certification. And the three primary backers are Dr. Bronner's Rodale and Rodale Institute and, and Patagonia. Those are the three entities that really got this going in, in the US and is just launching to brands in the next few weeks, something I wrote about uh, this week, this past week. And one of the components of this new certification, you have to have USDA certified organic as the baseline. So if you're a brand and you want to get this certification, you have to be USDA certified organic. That's the baseline. And then they have uh, soil. They have provisions for soil health, animal welfare, and social justice. So the social justice component that addresses, you know, fair treatment of workers, living wages. And that's a really timely component where brands, if they really want to take care of the workers on these farms, they can get ROC certified. And it's a new certification that I think is going to really, really grow in importance because I believe it will be, it's poised to become the new gold standard in organic, replacing the USDA organic seal. There are many problems with the organic seal. It's the best system we've had up until this point, and I still am only going to buy organic, but there are a lot of problems. One of the big problems we face is uh, hydroponics. Hydroponics, growing vegetables in water, is a complete violation of Section 6513 of the Organic Foods Production Act of 1990. That provision, and the USDA is allowing it, and what it's doing is it's putting out of business, there, a lot of them are small, small farmers that are growing in the soil. And organic is all about the soil. And in this provision that I just referenced, it says that farmers have to have a management plan that fosters soil fertility. Growing tomatoes in buckets of water has nothing to do with soil fertility. And yet the USDA is allowing this. Why do some growers, farmers do that instead of soil? I actually am completely ignorant about this. What is the draw to them? And, and what are the downsides of it for the industry? They do it because of efficiency. Growing in a bucket of water that you can control the environment is much easier than growing in the soil where it's, you know, you can't control the environment as much. So it's really just about efficiency and productivity and scale. Right. That's just such a huge issue in general with food. And I think part of my passion is, is raising the awareness around this. And it's so fascinating to me because, as you mentioned, Max, that the three of us are pretty deeply steeped in this food industry. We go to these trade shows mm -hmm. and we're getting more educated as a result. And I notice that people that aren't as involved in the food industry, the way they make their food purchases is a lot based on marketing, you know, <laughs> if not mainly. It's like here you are talking about child labor and issues with chocolate. I mean, chocolate's such a huge problem or has been for a long time. I think it's getting better in some ways, or at least it's more, it's easier to find organic chocolate and fair trade chocolate, which is really wonderful. I think coffee is a huge issue as well. I mean, the fair trade and the shade grown and all these different elements of coffee and coffee is such a huge industry. And mm -hmm. I just find that it's so common for people to just go to the store or go to a cafe or a restaurant and just purchase whatever is cheap, whatever is easy, whatever they're used to. I mean, you look at a company like Starbucks 
which I think that they are making incremental changes, but the average person is is just getting their coffee from Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts or something because that's what they know. And yet there's so much that goes into this and we have to raise our awareness. I think the reason that we make these decisions is because life can feel so overwhelming. It's like, I just want to go get my coffee. I like the way this tastes. This is what I'm used to. I know what to expect when I go in or when I go through the drive-thru and I know how much it's going to cost me. And so people just get in these rhythms with it because it feels too overwhelming to research things like how your tomatoes are grown. You know what I mean? But part of our mission here with this podcast and one of our reasons for bringing you on the show today, Max, is that we really want to encourage people to just incrementally grow their awareness because if we don't, then it does become more challenging for these certifications, right? It's a lot about supply and demand, don't you think? It is. And I think the biggest thing people need to be aware of is every time you know you spend a dollar at the grocery store or online, you're making a choice. Voting with your dollar. Yeah, you're voting with your dollar. And that is one of the reasons I do not go to these you know, trendy restaurants that maybe some of my friends want to go to. I don't go there. I'm not supporting Monsanto. I'm not giving them a dollar of my money. And I know what they're doing out there. And I have no interest in supporting. And so, you know, biggest thing people can do is just to be aware of what's going on. And I think it starts with just making one small change at a time and adapting to that and then making another change. And I remember when I first started to learn about organic food, Mm -hmm. which was somewhere around my the beginning stages of my journey with veganism. I went vegan in 2003 and I felt like really proud of it. You know, like Mm. I felt like I was making such a big difference on the planet and for animals and for my health. And I would just kind of talk to my friends like, hey, you know, look at all these big changes I'm making and you should try this too. And one of my friends was very educated on organic and I remember this conversation we had and she was like, A, you're buying a lot of processed vegan foods and that's not so great on your health or the environment because you're wasting a lot of packaging and processed foods can be detrimental even when they're vegan. And then B, you really should start to consider buying organic food. Mm. And I remember at first feeling annoyed and it was like, oh, but I'm already vegan. I felt like I'm making this big change. Like, isn't this enough? Yeah. And then I had to just like take my time. And when I felt ready, I started to learn about organic. And like you, Max, I started to feel really passionate about that as well as GMOs, genetically modified food. And I'm not as committed to it as you are, but I get very inspired when I hear from people like you. And that makes me want to be more aware of my purchases. And to be completely honest, sometimes I'm just like, I want to have this. It's vegan, but it's not organic. And that's okay. Cause I just feel like trying this, you know, a lot of the times my decisions come from that point, but I like having the reminder of why it's important to buy organic because that kind of brings me back to check in with myself. Mm. And again, I'm so grateful for you bringing up the worker side of it because my heart really goes out to all these incredible people that are growing our food and we don't acknowledge them. And I've watched a number of documentaries. One of them, I really can't remember off the top of my head, but I will put in the show notes for the listener if you're curious. And Max, if you have some documentaries that you've enjoyed, we can put them in the show notes at wellevator.com for the listener that's spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R. We have 
show notes for every single episode that we do, which allows you to read up and watch and educate yourself further. And I'll certainly put that documentary when I remember it, but it was about just the workers and fighting for their for justice and higher wages and better treatment. And when you really dig into all of this, it's so important to know what's going on behind the scenes and to humanize your food more. And I think we have a lot of awareness around small business that keeps growing, like support small businesses. Or right now with Black Lives Matter, a lot of us are supporting businesses that are owned or run or founded by Black people, you know, and we feel more empowered to do these things. But we have to remember that there are a lot of other factors that go into this and being aware of child labor or prison labor and things like that, simply because, as Max was saying, we can make really simple shifts. And it could simply be going to the grocery store and picking just one brand over another. And a lot of the times it's not that much more expensive. And it does depend on where you shop. You know, some stores certainly charge a lot more than others for things like organic. So you might need to make a different shift to a grocery store or a restaurant. But in a lot of cases, it might not be that hard for you to make those changes. I guess it really depends on where you live. Mm-hmm. But if you can, if you can make a small step and just swap one brand for another, you can make a really big change and really contribute to all of these incredible businesses that need our support. Without a question, it's how we spend our dollars is very, very important. There's no question about it. And yeah, I mean, what you said is right on. And, you know, I think people who are not in the food industry, maybe they find some of this a little overwhelming. And it's just taking it slow and making gradual change. And they don't necessarily need to go 100% organic tomorrow. They can go at their own pace and wherever they're at is what I often tell people. I think the interesting question that comes up for me in all this in terms of food politics, you mentioned, Max, and Whitney, you so brilliantly bringing up humanizing our food supply and understanding where it's coming from, who's picking it, and of course, how they're treated. The tough thing that I think about is making systemic changes to food production. And in the sense of if we want to pay workers a living wage, you know, especially you talked about, you know, people on certain kind of visas, Max, or perhaps even for me starting off in the restaurant industry as a chef, you know, lots of undocumented workers and Mm -hmm. barely being paid a living wage, you know, eight people existing in an apartment just to make ends meet or worse living conditions than that. Yeah. And it's a bit of a catch-22, isn't it, because of the political, socioeconomic factors, because I'm in full support of people being paid a living wage where they can, depending on where they exist, even if it's city life, having their basic requirements met of food, housing, shelter, warmth, air conditioning, you know, just the basics to live a good life, a decent life. But of course, if you pay workers a living wage, that might lead to prices being higher. And if there's a resistance already to some people in our society of organics already expensive, then if we pay workers, say, $15 an hour instead of 10, that drives up the cost of food to compensate for the higher wages of your workers. I guess I'm curious as an open discussion with both of you, is it something that we can do to make headway in terms of removing the subsidies from genetically modified foods, removing the subsidies from the corn, wheat, soy, and oats that we use as feed crops to livestock? I mean, from a political socioeconomic standpoint, what do you think are some of the aspects that could be revised, tweaked so that we can pay people a living wage, 
but not necessarily drive food prices through the roof in doing so? It's a very good question, an important question. It's, it's also a complicated one. Obviously, the big GMO seed and chemical companies have tremendous influence in Washington, D.C., and they get favorable treatment. So the farmers that are growing the GE corn and, and soy are the ones that often get the bailout money, and the small farmers usually don't. But we also have an inherent conflict in organic because the two main problems are affordability and accessibility. So if you want to make things more affordable, that means you got to drive the price down. And that's one of the things that has happened in the organic industry. There's been a race to the bottom because it used to be, you know, Whole Foods was the only show in town and then organic became popular and you can find it at every supermarket now. And so there's tremendous price pressure that retailers put on brands because they want to get customers and they want to offer uh, good prices. So there's really a race to the bottom. And we have this cultural assumption that food is supposed to be cheap because we're all pretty much the same age, but we grew up in a time where, you know, you go to the fast food and it's really cheap, 99 cents or whatever it might be. And so there's this assumption that food is supposed to be really cheap and food isn't cheap. Food is medicine and we should be paying more for our food than we are right now. So there's this cultural stigma that food is supposed to be cheap. And I'm not sure how we get out of that until people realize that we need to be paying more for our food because we're really, you get what you pay for. Absolutely. I'm so glad that you said that, Max. Jason taught me this really great term, uh, you pay with your purse or you pay with your person. Yeah. And it's basically saying, sure, you can save money, mm -hmm. but your health and the health of many other people, this whole ripple effect we've been talking about is greatly affected. So if you are willing to spend just a little bit more, it can make a massive difference. And it's interesting. I, when I wrote my book, Healthy Organic, Vegan on a Budget, I went into a lot of the statistics around how much money people typically spend. And it was so fascinating to go through those numbers. I don't remember them off the top of my head, but for anyone listening, you can check out that book and we'll link to it in the show notes at wellevator.com. And I've been wanting to go update it and just see how if things have changed much because it's been about six years since it came out. And at the time, I felt amazed by a couple different things. One was seeing how much money people were spending on food. And B was finding out that you can eat organic really inexpensively. In fact, that was the inspiration for writing that book was Jason and I did an experiment for a whole week. We saw how inexpensively we could eat if we made our own food and bought ingredients that are plant-based and organic. And we actually were able to eat for less than $5 a day, hmm. three meals, total expense was $5 wow. a day. So it was incredibly inexpensive and it opened up my eyes to the fact that it really depends on what you're buying. And of course, if you're going to go to a restaurant, organic food is generally more expensive. If you go to a place and get packaged processed food, it's going to be a little bit more expensive. But if you just get basic ingredients like vegetables, fruits, nuts, seeds, uh, dried beans, Think grains, things like that, you can make incredible nourishing food and eat very inexpensively. It's just that, as you're pointing out, Max, it requires a reframe here. And I also think that's the way to go if you really want to save money. But I love what you're saying here about Max is 
shifting our perception to the value of food and seeing it as medicine. And that was another thing I put in my book was that we spend a lot of money on healthcare. But if we're willing to change the way that we eat and invest some more money into the way that we eat, we may actually spend less money on healthcare overall. Like we might not need to take certain medications or maybe we can reduce them because the food becomes our medicine, as you're saying. Maybe we go to the doctor less and we can save a lot of money. So one thing I really recommend is doing an audit of your life and seeing how much are you spending on food? How much are you spending on healthcare? Where are you shopping? Where are you eating? What are you buying? And if you want to make some shifts there, if you're open to it, you can actually find it. It doesn't have to be that expensive. It's just kind of putting more money into food and less into other factors of your life. Yeah, exactly. Buying in the bulk sections, going to farmer's markets, cooking at home. I mean, that's, you know, you're 90% there. If you do those things, you are going to cut your expenses down in a very uh, meaningful way. Absolutely. And I think that COVID-19 has helped shift some of our perspectives around food because People are realizing that if they don't go out to the bar with their friends all the time, they could save a lot of money. <laughs> there were so many things that were closed, like all these cafes, for example. People are dependent on going to places like Starbucks, as I mentioned. But if you start brewing your own coffee at home, you can save so much money and you can buy organic. You know, like just buying organic coffee beans is like $10, <laughs> depending on where you're buying it from and what brand. And you can get lots of coffee drinks out of that versus you go to Starbucks and $10 gets you two or three drinks and they're not organic. And so you just have to be willing to make some of those shifts there. And ultimately, your well-being comes down to setting your priorities. So I hope for the listener, they're starting to view organic as more of a priority. And once you set a priority, it becomes easier for you to make it work in your lifestyle. Yeah, absolutely. Very well said. I think there's an interesting correlation to I've certainly paid attention to working as a chef for so many years. Max, you mentioned that there's this expectation that food is supposed to be cheap because of the conditioning of what we grew up with, really cheap fast food, really highly subsidized foods from the government, junk food. I mean, we live in, how did Dr. Gabriel Cousins put it? He said, we kind of, in terms of our food system, live in a culture of death. We've been raised in that where, where things are not healthy for us. And I think in terms of how people perceive how food is supposed to be cheap, I think, especially here in the US, there's kind of a sweeping expectation that portion sizes are supposed to be massive. Like if I don't have a giant plate of food in front of my face, I'm quote, you know, people, I'm not going to be satisfied by this. Mm -hmm. But I think part of the education that I love to disseminate to people is shifting from this idea that the size of the portion on your plate is the thing that's going to fill you up versus the nutrient density and the caloric density of the food that's in front of you. And that when you prepare something that's organic, local, extremely nutrient dense, putting the nutrients together in a very specific combination. And on top of that, organic local food tasting better, having a much more vibrant bouquet of flavors. One of my greatest pleasures is seeing someone have that shift of, oh, I don't have this massive giant plate of food. It might be half that size or a third of that size, but because of the nutrient density and the dynamic flavors, people feel satisfied. And I think that's also a huge shift for people and their expectations of what satisfying food ought to be. Mm, yeah. you bring up a really good point because that does not get a lot of discussion. Portion sizes, finding food 
what foods are nutrient dense, satisfying to you, it is largely about portions. And when we used to be able to go to restaurants, I would hear, oh, they just didn't give me enough food rather than this is really nutrient dense and all that. You bring up a very good point. The whole conversation around food, there's a lot, it's very complex and a lot of people don't understand it, haven't been around it enough, and it can be very intimidating. I mean, the three of us have had the good fortune to work in the industry and are very comfortable with it. But I remember when I first when I first got exposure to raw food, it was raw organic, plant-based food. I was in Miami at the time. It was around 2006, 2007, around then. And, you know, I just didn't know what was what. I was really learning. And so everyone's at a very different, it takes a while to get comfortable with this stuff and to really understand what we want to eat, what we should be eating and getting knowledge about, no, this is the right choice about certain foods or diets or whatnot. It takes a long time. How do you see the role, I'm curious, Max, of people in some ways, going back to the Victory Gardens movement of World War II, you know, when the federal government was encouraging people for food security reasons to raise their own gardens. And the family I grew up in certainly had that in the 50s uh-huh. during the war. My mom had a garden in Detroit where I grew up. So gardening has always been something that in terms of my family life I grew up with. It's been interesting to peruse social media and articles and people even outside our industry people who aren't directly in the food industry to see how many people are planting herb gardens, planting strawberries, planting tomatoes. And it just seems that along with, you know, quarantine baking and people making more food at home, which I'm very happy to hear, people are really getting to growing their own food and finally doing it in a very serious way. I'm curious your experience with that, how you feel about people being ultra local and growing organically. And have you gone down that road and how do you feel about it? I'm a big fan of it. Unfortunately, I've lived in cities pretty much my whole life in apartment buildings and have not had the ability to do that, to have a big backyard and to, or even a small backyard to grow my own food. But I think it's a very important development because what it's doing is it's connecting people to the food that they're eating and they're asking more questions. And that's the biggest thing is that they're asking more questions they're getting more involved in it. And ultimately, that's going to lead to better choices and better questions about where their food is coming from. So I know I did for a story I did maybe about two months ago, I interviewed this organic seed company in Vermont, and they said, we just, it's never been this busy ever. And they said that I think it was 10-day turnaround time. And it used to be before COVID hit, if you ordered, we could pretty much get it out the same day. It was a 10-day turnaround time. So there's been a huge resurgence in this because I think it's really important that people can become more self-sustaining. But I think the biggest thing, as I alluded to, is that people, it's connecting them to their food more and they are starting to ask more questions about, okay, I'm growing tomatoes in my backyard, but the tomatoes I'm buying at the store, well, how are they grown? Are they sprayed with chemicals? Because I'm not spraying them with chemicals. And So I think that's the biggest thing it's doing is it's really starting to connect people to food and asking these better questions. Absolutely. And another thing I want to touch on with you, Max, is your experience in the investment world. And I was doing some research on things that are trending recently, and a lot of people seem to be interested in 
socially responsible investing, conscious consumerism, sustainable finance. And that really ties into this discussion as well, because there's the consumer side, which is that conscious consumerism. And then, you know, there's a lot of talk about conscious capitalism as well. And then there's also the investment side and starting the business side of things. So what have you seen over the years on that side of things, like talking to a lot of people that are starting these businesses or investing in these businesses and how that's affecting the availability of organic and sustainable conscious food? What I think is happening is that consumers, particularly the millennials, are becoming much more conscious about how they're spending their dollars and wanting to support companies that are doing the right thing. Particularly the younger consumers are more conscious of how they're spending their money. That ultimately is going to lead to companies performing better, being better investments. And I think really this is where the world is going is that people, you know, brands or companies there's a lot more accountability now than there ever was. How they're treating their employees, how they're treating their vendors, how they're operating as an overall business. And those are the ones that people want to support more. And frankly, consumers are demanding more responsible companies. Absolutely. And I think, again, that all ties into the awareness of this. And What do you think is coming next since you are so involved with the organic industry and also, you know, aware of what's happening on the investment side, which is always kind of interesting, right? Because you can learn a lot if you start to study things like the stock market and you see like what's affecting businesses. I'm often paying attention to brands like Beyond Meat. And it's been really fascinating to see their success as a plant-based company, right? And seeing that the growing trends, as I mentioned, it's It's so interesting to have been in the vegan industry for so long on the media and publisher side of things because you get a lot of announcements about new products coming out and then you go to the store and you see all of these new developments. And then if you pay attention to the stock market, it's also really interesting to see how just consumer purchase is shaping things, but also the investments are shaping things. So what kind of trends are you seeing? What do you think is coming up in the organic industry? Well, there are not a lot of publicly traded organic food companies. So that's number one. But one of the interesting things is that, and the big food companies have a real problem on their hands because they know that organic food is the future. They want to be an organic. I think many of these people who work at these big companies understand that, that they really want to be moving into that space. And yet organic tends to be smaller margins, not as profitable, higher costs. It's a real existential dilemma for these big food companies because they've made their money. They have multi, multi multi-billion dollar valuations based on all the GMO uh, food that they're selling or non-organic food that they're selling. It's a real problem because they have the valuation they do because of these legacy brands which actually have been doing, there was an article in the New York Times lately, how people have been going back to these sort of unhealthy processed brands. So, but in general, I think these big food companies have a problem because they know that the value of their companies are the things that are slowing in growth. And the area of growth is the organic products, but the margins there are just much, it's not as profitable. 
Yeah, that's really fascinating too. And that leads me to another question from your perspective, Max, is that brands like Beyond Meat, as I mentioned, are not organic, but they're non-GMO. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, is is non-GMO a step in the right direction or is it kind of like a way for brands to look like they're being more responsible? It seems like it might be easier to be non-GMO. Is that correct in an assumption? Because a lot of these brands are getting like certified for that. And yet I wonder what's holding them back from going organic. You know, this is a big controversy in organic because when the non-GMO project started, people saw it as a bridge to going organic. And it didn't end up being that way because the price premium between non-GMO and organic was not, I think it was relatively similar. So there's confusion when people see non-GMO on a label a lot of people think, okay, it's okay. It's non-GMO. Well, no, it only means no GMOs. It doesn't mean that it hasn't been sprayed with glyphosate or some of these other chemicals. So that's one issue. I think there's confusion. And the other thing is that you see a lot of non-GMO labels on things that there's no such thing as genetically engineered seaweed. You see the (laughs) non-GMO label on that. (laughs) So unless you are really, really aware of the, I don't know, I think we're up to maybe like 15 genetically engineered food products. I mean, there's the big ones, the corn and soy, canola, cottonseed, sugar beet. But, you know, that is one of the things that, you know, I go to the market. I'm like, why do these people have the non-GMO label on their product when it's not organic, when there is absolutely no genetically engineered, whatever the product might be? of that product. And yet they've got the non-GMO project label on it. So that's one thing, but there's a lot of confusion and there are plenty of people who think, okay, it's non-GMO. That's good enough. I get into that mindset a lot myself, actually. And so this is really a good thing for me to reflect on further because the non-GMO certification label is really pretty and eye-catching. And so whenever I see it, I feel good, you know, like, Ooh, well, it's not organic, but it is non-GMO. And Sometimes when I'm comparing brands, like I don't know what the latest is with Impossible Foods. I'm grateful that they exist, but I remember I always thought that Beyond Meat had a little bit of a leg up because they were non-GMO. And to my current knowledge, I don't know if Impossible Foods has made that shift yet. But again, like that would be my mindset. And if you go into Beyond Meat's website, they have a little FAQ section and people ask, are they organic? And they're like, no, but we are non-GMO. And so I'm wondering, is that like, hey, this is where we're at right now, or is that a marketing tactic? And it sounds like it could be one or the other, and it requires a lot of research and awareness about why these brands are using those terms. Yeah. I mean, I think for consumers out there who might be confused is if you see a non-GMO label on a package, you know, look at the ingredients and then go do research. Are these ingredients that the brand is using, do genetically engineered versions of those ingredients exist? That's one thing that, and then that will tell you what's going on here. Is this just a marketing label or are they doing it? You know, maybe it's like potatoes. There are potatoes now that don't brown. They're these genetically engineers, non-browning potatoes. So if you see potatoes or potato chips in the supermarket and it's got the non-GMO label on it, you know, that's valid now. And that wasn't valid a few years ago. So that's an example of getting to understand what ingredients are genetically engineered and which ones are not, because then tell you a lot about 
the packaging and why that label's on there in the first place. Right. I think it goes back to the overwhelm that you can feel because then you hear that and you think, well, now I have to go look up all these each and every ingredient to decide if this is even worth it. And I think a lot of people that just want an easy way to read labels, like, and I think that's why the certifications are so appealing because you can scan it without having to go and do your research on these things. But I think it's about finding the balance and depends how passionate you are about it. You know, Max, you're certainly very passionate and you're very informed. And it's also taken you like 20 years to get to this point. So as a reminder, (laughs) for each of us, we've been steeped in this industry for a long time. And for the average consumer, they may be on a different part of their journey. The other thing, Max, I'm curious to hear your input on is when I was researching current trends, I saw the term genetically modified mosquitoes. And I thought Mm. that's interesting, too. It's not just an issue with food. It's also like our animals and other creatures, bugs and such being genetically modified. Do you have much information about the mosquito trend right now? (laughs) Well, I think they got approval. The EPA, I think it was the EPA gave approval for I think it was Texas and Florida, parts of Texas and Florida for them to be released. And now I think they have to get local approval. That's where it is. They're already, I believe the Center for Food Safety has already filed lawsuits, but they've already released genetically engineered moths in New York state. Genetically engineered salmon has already been approved. You know, when these things get released into the wild, there is no turning back. We don't know what's going to happen. Oh, another thing that I wrote about, I think it was last year I wrote about it. I've written about it several times, but the latest piece was last year. Genetically engineered American chestnut trees. And they're saying that, yeah, we can put these trees in the forest and, you know, it'll help us grow trees and make more paper and all that. So we're really messing with Mother Nature here. It's really scary that people don't seem to be too alarmed that once these things are out in the wild, there's no turning back. And it makes a lot of people in the organic industry very uneasy. Can I ask a perhaps a macro level question on that subject? And I'm curious from a perspective of perhaps human psychology and where we've evolved into in our current societal framework. Why do you think some people, and I'm just going to say it because I don't have any other way to say it. Why do you feel that some people have a propensity to want to play God? And I'm saying that not to lean toward any religious preference. I just think you know what I mean when I say that, you know, in terms of releasing these into the wild and not understanding how it's going to affect our ecosystem, our planetary health, our human health. I mean, what do you think it is about people wanting to play God and create life and mess with DNA sequences? And I'm not saying this from a shaming perspective. I'm just genuinely curious, like, what in a person would feel compelled to do this? What do you think that is psychologically or sociologically? I think there's a few different reasons. One is I think some people just absolutely don't care. Another one is that it's just all these decisions are driven by money, and that's a big part of it. And then, you know, there's some people like Bill Gates who was pushing GMOs in Africa and is a big Monsanto backer and is investing in all these uh, synthetic biology GE uh, GMO 2.0 companies is people like him really believe that technology is going to solve the world. you know, can cure the world of everything. So I think if you asked him, he would say these technologies can be of tremendous help. So I think there's people on all three areas there, but I think it's the height of arrogance to think that 
we or a person is smarter or a scientist is smarter than human nature. I think it's the height of arrogance. And as we've seen with these genetically engineered crops, the big problem with these genetically engineered crops is they become tolerant to the chemicals that are sprayed on them. So the big one is glyphosate. Glyphosate is the primary ingredient in Monsanto's Roundup. So they've designed these genetically engineered corn and soy crops so that when you spray them with glyphosate, with Roundup, it kills everything around the crop except the crop itself. So the idea is we're going to kill the weeds around the crop, but not we're not going to kill the crop itself. But Mother Nature is very smart, and Mother Nature has adapted. And so what has happened is that, that we have, I think it's about 100 million acres of super weeds profiled in the New York Times, every publication, is that these weeds have become resistant to Roundup and glyphosate. And they develop, they're bigger and they're stronger weeds. And so the chemical companies are just say, oh, well, the answer is let's just throw more toxic chemicals on them, stronger, more potent chemicals. That's the answer. But getting back to your question, you know, some of these people think that technology can solve all of our problems. And what they don't believe is that Mother Nature is smarter than we are. And that's been proven time and time again. All you got to do is look at all these super weeds, these millions and millions of acres of super weeds that we have growing throughout America. This is so fascinating on so many levels, Max, and I appreciate you giving such a eloquent answer to my question. It really is this battle, I suppose, corporations that have public shareholders that are driven by profit versus an increasingly aware and conscious society that is becoming aware, as we've discussed throughout this episode, of human rights issues and fair living wages and practices and protecting human health. And it just seems that in many ways, we are at an interesting crossroads in human evolution right now, where mm -hmm. there's, I suppose, one group of people that are taking ancient wisdom and ancient practices and getting back to the roots of how we used to live generations ago and growing their own food and canning and, and getting to more holistic remedies for health. And then you have the people you're talking about that are very technocratic and at the expense of maybe short-term losses of human life or health, we're trying to do something to ensure the sanctity of future generations. It just seems that I'm curious if you feel there is a balance where, say, advanced technologies can somehow meet with these ancient holistic practices and come to some sort of balanced approach. How do you feel about that, the intersection of technology and perhaps ancient holistic remedies and methods and ways of living? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a very good question. It's a real balancing act. How much can we take from the past and take from the present and make our lives work and really advance society in a sustainable way? So I think it's a very challenging question. But what we've seen with the food supply is these new technologies are causing incredible harm. There's no way around it. Yeah. I'm curious just to jump back to a previous point in our conversation where you talked about this new certification, the regenerative organic that you've been working on and have some incredible backing right now. You mentioned Patagonia, Dr. Bronner's, and who is the third entity? It's an organization called Rodale Institute. They're in Pennsylvania. And if anyone listening is a fan of organic, make a pilgrimage to the Rodale Institute once we can go there. It's where the organic food movement started in the US in the 1940s, J.I. Rodale. It's a 330-acre institution in Pennsylvania, where they do farm trials. They do side-by-side -side trials of organic and GMO crops. 
to monitor, to do yield tests of side by side. And it's really a very, very special place. So yeah, Rodale, Patagonia, and Dr. Bonner's were the three primary backers of this uh, regenerative organic certified standard. Phenomenal. So I have a couple sub questions because I'm really curious to learn more about this. In terms of you rolling out this certification, two things. Number one, how difficult do you anticipate consumer education being for this? We've mentioned non-GMO. We've mentioned USDA organic. I'm seeing labeling come out now. I think One Degree Organic Foods has now a certified glyphosate-free label. They're the first package I've seen with that. Mm -hmm. So with all of these layers of certifications and also from a product packaging design with all of these logos and codes and certifications, what do you see the challenges, first of all, in terms of consumer awareness and education with this new certification? And the second question is, what do you anticipate the rollout if you had to put a date on it? Is this something that's going to be arriving by the end of 2020 into 2021? Give us an update on that also. Well, you touch on something that in the industry is a real issue is something called certification fatigue. People really just roll their eyes when they hear about a new certification because there's so <laughs> many of them. Wow. I mean, you know, there's vegan and keto and paleo and non-GMO and organic. I mean, you can fill your package with all these different <laughs> certifications. Certification fatigue is a real deal. And then you mentioned one degree. They have a glyphosate-free certification called BioCheckt. And the other certification for glyphosate is called glyphosate residue free, which I'm involved with that certification and I help promote it. And yeah, I mean, so you have, you have multiple certifications just for glyphosate. So that's number one. And I think it does get very confusing for the consumer. They see all these different certifications. And by the way, just to back up when we were talking about non-GMO, when you buy organic, that is non-GMO. But the reason that the USDA organic seal, the program, they do not do the testing on high-risk ingredients that the non-GMO project does. But when you're buying organic, you're buying a non-GMO product, but there may have been contamination or they don't take into account high-risk uh, products like canola, corn, or soy. And so that's why you really want to get organic and the non-GMO on those high-risk products. So getting back, so I think there's certification fatigue, number one. There's a ton of certifications out there. And I think it makes it very challenging for the consumer. It makes it challenging for the brands as well. When they think, oh, you know, how many certifications do we have to put on here? And is this going to confuse the consumer? In regards to the ROC, there are already ROC certified products on the market. If you go to patagoniaprovisions.com, that's a marketplace where they are curating ROC certified products and other ones that meet the standards but may not have the certification just yet. Dr. Bronner's has a ROC certified coconut oil. Nature's Path has a ROC certified instant oatmeal. It's delicious. And Patagonia has a spiced mango, I think it's a chili mango dry goods product that they have that's ROC certified. So there are, over the last year, ROC has been, they just wrapped up their pilot program with 19 different farms around the world. And so there are a few that are coming onto the market. And in the next few weeks, they are opening this up to to any brand that's interested in getting the certification. So I think the challenge is, is building out the supply chain for ROC ingredients. So if you're a product, let's say you're a cereal company and you have three ingredients in your product, that may be doable to get that, the ROC certification for that. It's only three ingredients. You know, Dr. Bronner's the coconut oil, one ingredient. Nature's Path, the, the instant oatmeal, one ingredient. One of the challenges with ROC is building out the supply chain. 
So to go to the supermarket and to see hundreds of ROC products on the shelf, that's not going to happen until the supply chain is built out. You are going to see select products that have one and two, maybe three ingredients in them over the next year or two. So it really depends on the supply chain and the complexity of the product. But I agree with you. I mean, you know, one of the challenges that ROC does have is communicating to the consumer. What is ROC? What is regenerative organic certified mean? I don't think most people know what regenerative means. Most people don't know what organic means. It's a challenge that the certification has is how do we educate the consumers about what our certification means, what the label means, why they should be looking for this label. So it's a challenge. There's no question about it. If you don't mind, Max, just touching on what regenerative agriculture is, there's a great organization here in Los Angeles called Kiss the Ground that I've gone to some presentations and learned from. But I'm going to go out on a limb and and probably make a bet that most of the listeners right now that are tuning in have not familiarized themselves with that. So could you go into what it is and not just what it is, but why is it advantageous for the health of the planet and the health of the soil? Yeah, it's primarily about capturing carbon from the environment and using the soil to do that. And regenerative agriculture is food that's grown in a way that actually regenerates the soil that actually improves the soil. So there's the word sustainable is when you think about what it means, what does sustainable mean? It means keeping it the same. For a lot of people, that's not good enough. It's like we got to make the soil better after we use it. We want to improve it. So that's what it means. And it has to do with the way they manage the soil and in terms of cover crops and tillage and things like that. And there's a real huge debate in the industry about whether, so to answer your question is regenerative means in a manner that's improving. So if you're doing regenerative farming, it means that you're improving the soil, but it gets very complicated. And the debate within the industry gets very acrimonious because there are some people that say it has to be regenerative organic. Otherwise it's not regenerative and that you can't be using glyphosate, this toxic weed killer on your land and call it regenerative, so, which is, you know, a lot of these efforts that are regenerative are not organic. They're just regenerative and they may be using chemicals oh. on, their, on their product. So this is a source of very contentious debate within the community. And, you know, the people who, there are people who say on the side of, you can say regenerative, even if they are using chemicals. A lot of people feel like, look, we need to meet farmers where they're at. And if they're reducing the amount of chemicals they're using because they're incorporating regenerative practices, then we're okay with that because we don't have a lot of time and we need to get people to improve the farming that they're doing and get them to use fewer chemicals. So that's really the debate. So that really gets to uh, the big debate within the regenerative community. So, you know, if you ask people in regenerative, I mean, you get answers, you know, on both sides of the spectrum. This is all so fascinating, Max. And it's, <laughs> it's, I just love your passion and knowledge for all of this. And, uh, we could just go on and on about all these topics. So we've already discussed before we started recording, doing a, another episode with you. And now I'm very confident that's going to happen because there's just so much to talk about. And we didn't even dip into your upcoming book. And we wanted to get a touch upon depression and antidepressants and your meditation practice. I mean, there's so many things that we can explore with you. And I'd love to make those last few 
points a bigger part of the conversation. And then whatever else is coming up in the meantime, as this industry continues to evolve. And the good news is you have that phenomenal resource, Organic Insider. So for anyone listening who can't get enough of this subject matter and you're finding yourself really wanting to educate and just be very informed about what's going on and how that can drive your purchasing decisions, please go to the show notes. So that's again at wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And we're going to link to all of Max's resources. I also saw you just joined TikTok, Max. You haven't posted anything at the time of recording, but hopefully by the time this episode comes out, we'll see some content from you. (laughs) But at the very least, the listener could follow you on TikTok if they're on there and stay tuned for some really juicy, organic, fun content. (laughs) I can't wait to see what you do on there, Max. And as we start to wrap up, my question for you is right now, what do you feel like is something that is kind of like an easier step that people can take? Like if you had like one piece of advice for two different types of people. So one is somebody who's a a complete newbie who maybe they found this podcast because they're trying to be more informed about organic and they just want to start somewhere. I would love to know what you would advise for that type of person. And then I'd also love to know what would you advise for someone like me and Jason and other listeners who are similar to us in terms of like, okay, you know, the basics, maybe you have like an intermediate knowledge awareness of organic, but you're not quite as advanced as you are, Max. What would you advise for them? So these two different types of avatars, the beginner and then the mid-range person in terms of their knowledge. You know, someone starting off, I would say this, start eating an organic breakfast. And that doesn't have to be expensive and that doesn't have to be overwhelming. And I know a lot of people are working from home now. Not everyone's working from home, but if you can eat an organic breakfast, you're eating a third of your diet that's organic right away. And that could be oatmeal, that could be bananas, whatever it might be, cereal, fruit. So if you want to get into organic, that is the best way to do it and commit to say, I'm going to start eating an organic breakfast. And lunch and dinner, if that's too overwhelming, just start with breakfast. And then when you go to the supermarket, just start asking questions and start looking at the ingredients. And so that's what I would say to people is if you can start with an organic breakfast, that is very manageable and that can be very affordable. What are some of your favorite organic breakfasts to have yourself, Max? You know, I'm doing more of the intermittent fasting these days. So I'm generally not eating. (laughs) Me too. Maybe noon or one. Yeah, But when I do, maybe I'm making a smoothie or I'm drinking a green juice in the morning. That's generally what it is. Do you drink coffee? Is that part of your fasting? Because for me, I'm in the same boat. I start my day off with a cup of organic coffee and plant-based milk. And I'll just, that'll tide me over until like you're saying noon or one o'clock. No, I've had a lot of addictions in my past, but coffee hasn't been one of them probably on purpose. (laughs) How about tea? Do you just fast entirely? Do you just have water? Is that your yeah. version of it? Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, That's impressive. Because the cool thing about coffee for intermittent fasting is that it's an appetite suppressant. So, And then you feel like you get to have something. So I look forward to having that. But that's really impressive that you don't have anything until lunch. I wake up, I take these amino acids, I do that, but I really wouldn't consider that a meal per se. But you know, I'm up and running. I wake up, I meditate. I do something called creating my day. 
where I visualize what I want to happen. And then, you know, I'll either do yoga in the morning or just start working. So there's a lot going on and lunch just comes before I know it. I can agree. Well, okay. So then what are some of your favorite breakfast items? Since you, like me and Jason, love products, you're aware of a lot of different options for people. So you mentioned an oatmeal cup, right? An organic oatmeal cup. What else do you love that's out right now that people might be excited to try out? This is very local to where I am in Massachusetts. I found a really good, as Jason was saying, he likes to travel around the country and checking out the new local products. There's a sauerkraut brand in Massachusetts called Hosta Hill. Kimchi is one of my favorite foods and they have an amazing kimchi. You just gave me and Jason a big reason to go to Massachusetts because <laughs> Jason loves fermented oh, foods. Man, even without Expo East this year, even if we pour one out for Expo East, maybe we'll still come. Maybe we'll still come. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. So kimchi is one of my absolute favorite foods. So this was something I was in Western Mass visiting my chiropractor out there. And I went to the local health food store to check it out. He told me to check it out. And so I discovered that brand out there. And, you know, Urban Remedy has expanded to Boston. They were in New York City, so they are in Boston now. And I love what they're doing with their products. I love Suja's new drinks. The Elevated Nutrients line is, they've done an awesome job with that. And Rebel has a new sparkling turmeric drink. And they have a new keto drink that I really want to try. It's like a keto smoothie. Yeah, exactly. Oh, it looks so, and that could be breakfast, right? Yeah, that could be breakfast. You know what? I'll make a smoothie with uh, blueberries and chia seeds and flax seeds and medicinal mushrooms. Ohm mushrooms is a product I really yes, like. Yes, us too. We love them. And Four Sigmatic, of course, is great. And they have coffee and various powders. Yep. And what else will I put in there? You know, I'll put in protein powder or I'll put in other types of berries and nut butter. Here's a trick if you want to make a smoothie and you don't have time to make your own nut milk is just use cold water and add nut butter. Yes, yes. I love that. <laughs> that is such a great hack that I feel like a lot of people don't know. Of, so thank you. You could yeah. like have instant almond milk just by using almond butter. Yeah. I love this discussion because you're bringing up things for beginners and people that might be a little mid-range in their knowledge. So thank you for all of this. So many great yeah. brands and ideas. You know who told me that one was Jesse Schwartz at Living Tree Community Foods. You know the brand? I used to get Living Tree, their raw nut butters. Like when I was first going raw foodist, God, 13 years ago, mm -hmm. they were one of the first nut and seed butter companies I discovered. Incredible quality. Unbelievable quality. And, you know, I don't think they get the, I don't know if acclaim is the right word, or recognition that they deserve and that's commensurate with the quality of their products. I mean, they're not a sponsor of mine. I don't make one cent from them, but they are, it's a really good brand. So I remember the person who runs the company came to visit me in New York. This was many years ago. And I got exposure to him and he was like, yeah, just because I used to make my own Brazil nut milk all the time. I used to do a lot of Brazil nut milk and then black sesame seed milk I used to do yes. as well. And speaking of that, I'm a really big fan of Three Trees and they make that oh, yeah. wonderful black sesame milk. 
And they're really doing a lot of creative things with plant-based milks right now. Yeah, they've got the black sesame, and then they also have the pistachio milk, don't they? Yes, that's so right. Good. Oh, oh good. my gosh. There's so many great brands, and <laughs> we're going to link to all of them in the show notes. Living Tree has an online store. So a lot of these brands you can buy directly through their website. Some uh-huh. of them you can find on Amazon if you want to shop there, although you know we're trying to refer directly so the business gets as much of the commission as possible and we can support, you know, and be in full alignment too, because Amazon's not always the most ethical shopping choice. And I'm a fan of, we talked about Thrive Market. I love yep. iHerb. There's so many wonderful places. So we'll link to as many of those as possible and encouraging the listener to just do some research. If you Google your favorite brand and a lot of them have store locators. And so you can go find them at a local store if you can yep support a natural market or a co-op. And those are sprinkled around the country and the world. And you might be introduced to something down the street that you didn't even know of. And the cool thing is a lot of non-natural markets are carrying these products too. So it's about just growing your awareness as we talk about a lot. Well, speaking of which, Max, we are so blessed to know you, you know, all these years. It's cool that I've known you almost your entire career because like I said, (laughs) I got to see you following me on Twitter back in 2010 and you were just getting started and so was I and and you're just such a wealth of information. So as we said, we will link to all of your great work on social media and your newsletter and your website. That'll be in our show notes at wellevator.com. And speaking of social media, we're there for you too as a listener. So if you want to connect with us, Jason and I, that's also at wellevator, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R on all the major social media platforms. And stay tuned. Be sure to subscribe to the show. You can subscribe to our newsletter. We will keep you posted when we have Max on the show again, which, you know, we don't know exactly when that's going to be yet, but maybe when your book is gearing up to come out, Max, which I'm so excited to read. And we'll link to your book too once that's out. We'll put that in this episode as well as the future episode. And we wish we were going to see you in a few months at Expo East, but you know, we'll just have to figure out when the next time we get to see you in person. For those of us in the industry, we see everyone at these uh, trade shows. Yep. And oftentimes that's it. You know, that's the only time we see each other. So to not have them, and I always love seeing you guys at the shows, and to not have that is a real loss, yeah. not only for the industry, but just to see people. And Agreed. Agreed you sort of take it for granted because there's a lot of travel that's involved and you know, they're a long day. Going to these shows is not digging ditches, but they're long days. <laughs> it feels like you're digging a ditch sometimes. <laughs> yeah. But it's too bad that, you know, it's really unfortunate what's going on on a variety of levels, but you know, not having these shows and not seeing people, but hopefully uh, they'll come back soon. And thank you so much for having me. I love what you guys are doing with this podcast. I love the voice that you're putting out there and talking about some great issues. And it's been an honor to be on your show. So thank you so much for having me. Such a pleasure, Max. Thank you. I can't say it enough how much we appreciate you and can't wait for the next time. Well, thank you. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.